0: He drew near to the Philistine, and frankly, Goliath never had a chance. Never had a chance. When he challenged the Israelite army to send a warrior to do battle with him, the great giant did not realize it. But as soon as he did that, and as soon as this young shepherd boy decided he would come with his sling and his five smooth stones... The battle was done. They should have fled immediately. The Philistines should have gone back to the coast where they, were, where they were, were colonizing. In fact, they should have gotten in their ships even from there and gone back to Crete, which is where they probably came from in, in the beginning. David had all the power and was in total control of the situation. Goliath was the underdog. Are you surprised by that interpretation of the story? I was too when I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. His he describes in this in this marvelous little book, which I would uh, 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 give you as a, a marvelous collection of ideas he He argues that Goliath never had a chance because David took advantage of the situation in a way that we often oftentimes miss. He turned everything into his favor Goliath was. Heavily armored, as you heard the story. He was tall and strong, had a large sword, a bronze sword, a big shield. He also would have had a, a small spear in his hand, not for throwing but for engaging in hand-to-hand combat, in close, close-at-hand combat. David, the young shepherd boy, looked nothing like that at all, but he held the advantage. He had youth, speed, quickness, and frankly, a superior weapon in the sling and the stone in his hand. Now, I want you to consider the setting before we, we get to the to the battle itself. The, the Philistines were, as I said, seafarers who were probably from the island of Crete. They were colonizing on the Palestinian coastland. And they were they were trying to figure out how they could defeat King Saul and the Israelite army, how they could sort of divide and conquer it. And the way they came up up through the Valley of Elah was a way that certainly military strategists have looked and said, yes, if they were able to win this battle, they could separate Northern Kingdom of, of Israel, the northern portion of Israel, from the southern portion, and therefore take over control, defeat Saul, and take take the land, take these very fertile and beautiful valleys, where they could feed themselves and grow their own nation strong as it were. They wanted to cut the kingdom in half and take control. But here's the problem. When they came into the Valley of Elah, their army was on one ridge on one side, and the army of the Israelites was on the other. And you can see right away, you don't have to be a military expert, which I'm certainly not, but both of them were in a dangerous place. If one army decided to charge down the valley, down the hill, and down into the valley, and then up the hill onto the other side, it would be easy for that army to defeat them. It's a suicide mission. And so they're basically both there, stuck, not sure of what to do, neither one wanting to move first, for that would truly be the the defeat of their army. And so Goliath takes it into his own hands. He puts on his armor, and in full battle gear, he swaggers down in the valley and he taunts the Israelites. He calls out for a champion to fight him. By the way, historians will tell you, this was not an uncommon thing in antiquity. Rather than two armies fighting and, and almost wiping each other out, it was often, often decided, battle was often decided by one army sending their champion out to meet the other. Sometimes it might be on a bridge or in a valley, wherever it might be. This is a way of, uh, of avoiding the carnage and, and moving on forward. Well, the young shepherd David arrives at the battlefront with cheese and bread for his brothers. You can read the whole story in, in 1 Samuel. But that's how David comes there. He's the youngest of all the brothers. And his father says, I want to hear word from the battle. Would you take them some cheese and some bread, take enough for them and for the garrison around them, and then bring back word to me on how they are doing? You can see the concern the father would have. And David, as the youngest, would have no other choice but to take the bread and the cheese, to do the menial task of delivering some, some, some food. I want to pause there for a moment. Note this. David didn't leave his father's place thinking to himself, I will go now and become a great warrior. I will go and save my people. He didn't write down in his journal, I'm going to take care of, of, of of this Philistine. He had no idea about any of that at all. He was simply doing the menial task of taking the bread and the cheese. No glory. His brothers are hungry. They need some food. Perhaps we miss the glory and the greatness that are right before every one of us because sometimes we're not willing to take on the menial tasks. Sometimes we think maybe maybe none of you, but I'll just preach to myself then for a minute. Sometimes we think, oh, I don't do that. I'm I'm better than that. I'm I'm above that. I was 25 years old when I left for seminary, and and I don't mind telling you, I kind of had some dreams of maybe doing something big with my, my life and speaking in front of thousands and that sort of thing some someday. And so I said to my mentor in ministry, who is also still one of my best friends, uh, even to this day, his name is Doug. Doug, Doug, when I get to seminary, how, how can I really prepare to you know speak in front of big conventions and big halls and, and do all that? And he kind of smiled and said, uh, what you need to do is take every opportunity you get. When you're in school, if you're invited to speak somewhere or do something, don't worry about honorariums. Don't worry about crowd sizes. Don't worry about becoming famous. Just go and do it. And it's in the doing of it over and over and over again, no matter how small it might be, that you'll be trained and you'll gain some skills, hopefully, along the way. I had Doug's voice in my head when I got a call from a buddy of mine to go and preach for him on a Sunday night. He was going to be out of town. He was preaching this little church up in the hills of East Tennessee, way up above Johnson City, Tennessee, up in the mountains there. A little country church. I said, sure, John, I'll do it. And he said, by the way, there's a $25 honorarium. I was like, yes, I'll 25 bucks." Oh, I was poor in seminary, so I was glad to get every dollar I could. Well, church was over at my own church that morning. And then I got in my car to drive up to John's church and it started to snow and it snowed and it snowed like crazy. And I got all the way up there. It was a little church, kind of their their sanctuary is about the size of our chapel, maybe seated 125, 130 like ours does. But I walked in, there's seven or eight inches of snow outside. Sunday night service, there were seven people in in this little church. Well, I'd memorized my sermon. It was okay. I just, I got up and I just got it going into my sermon. I just gave it with gusto and everything. And then I got lost halfway through. And because I would memorized it, I hadn't brought any notes. And so I just kept talking and talking and talking and talking. It was about a 38-minute sermon when this good old boy sitting on the front row said, uh, Son, I believe you can quit right now. <laughs> it was a great lesson to learn. And I'm glad my friend Doug said, you know, sometimes you just got to do as much as you can so that you get the experience. And trust me, I've got dozens of stories like, like that, dozens of them. Sometimes we don't get the opportunity to defeat the giants in our lives because we don't want to deliver the bread and the cheese. Sometimes we say, no, I'm I'm above that. I I heard a preacher once say, it was a group of preachers meeting together for support. He said, you know, I'm so angry at my church. I have to get all the volunteers signed up for the luncheons, and i got to do all this. Is that why I went and got a PhD? And one of the other preachers said, yeah, it is. Sometimes we don't want to deliver the bread and the cheese. Rob Bell, who's one of my great, my, my great heroes in ministry, says, you want to conquer giants? Bring the cheese first. A simple, a simple truth. So David arrives with the supplies, with the food for his brothers and for the others. And that's when he overhears the Goliath with the taunts. And David declares to the king, I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to fight. And David, King Saul looks at him and says, but you're just a kid you're skinny and scrawny and this guy have you seen him have you heard him he's tall and he's got armor from head to foot and a giant sword and a huge shield and a spear and you you can't do that but Saul's desperate and so he goes ahead and puts David in his armor gives him all the the protection that he thinks he'll need David can barely move it's it's hard to tell in, in in English but in Hebrew it's a hilarious story because here's this, this, this young shepherd boy in this grown-up man's armor. And he looks ridiculous. He looks like, like a fool. He can't even move at all. And he says, I don't need this. I've got a sling. I'll collect a stone or two. Ends up getting five. And that will be enough. I'll take on the giant with this. The moment he decided to fight this way, the battle was over. Yes, Goliath looks terrifying. Yes, he is prepared for hand-to-hand combat. He's expecting that whoever the Israelites send will come right up to him and the two of them will engage in a fight right up close. The sword and the spear are designed for battle in this way. But David says, no. I will fight you on my terms and fight you with my skills. He recognizes his advantage. He's young, he's quick, and he's fast. He also has, he may not know the science behind this, but he knows from experience that he has in that slingshot the most powerful weapon he could possibly need in that moment. In fact, one scientist has said that Goliath had as much chance against David with that slingshot as a a Bronze Age warrior with a heavy bronze sword would have against a forty five automatic pistol. That's how much power with an accurate shot a slinger would have. And slingers were a part of of armies in antiquity. It was a difficult, difficult task. It was very hard to learn how to become one. But once you became an accurate slinger, you could take down dozens of men with nothing more than a little bit of leather and a stone or two. So when the Israelite King Saul looked at David and looked at the situation... He saw something that was hopeless. But David looked at it, and what did he see? An opportunity to use his own skills to his advantage. Here's what Malcolm Gladwell, the author of the book I'm quoting, says. What the Israelites saw from on high in the ridge was an intimidating giant. In reality, the very thing that gave the giant his size was also the source of his greatest weakness. He was ponderous and slow. He couldn't move. He wouldn't be able to chase after after this, this young boy at all. There is an important lesson in that for battles with all kinds of giants, Gladwell says. The powerful and the strong are not always what they seem. Are are there gigantic battles in your life that are bringing you down? Have you been facing some giants that it just seems like they're just too much, too big? Are you discouraged by the way things have gone for you lately? Maybe what you need is eyesight and vision like David's. David, in this battle, he, 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 he speeds, he charges, he runs toward Goliath, the storyteller tells us. He runs toward him with that sling going. And at that point, he has the strength. He has the advantage. Richard Rohr says, the most courageous thing we'll ever do is to bear humbly the mystery of our own reality. Do you hear what he's saying? The most courageous thing you can do is be you. Every wedding ceremony that I lead, I almost always say, almost always say to the bride and groom, the finest gift you can ever give to another person is the unique and marvelous one that God has created you to be. Never be afraid to both give and receive that as the finest of gifts. Who you are right now is enough to face whatever is going on in your life and in the world. When we're able to reframe the situation in light of our own particular gifts, Obstacles that seemed insurmountable suddenly become nothing more than stepping stones. Uh, let, me, let me ask you a, a very personal question. You raise your hand. I'll, my hand's up. I'm already saying yes. How many of you are Star Trek fans? We have some Star Trek fans? Oh, good. All the nerds are here. Thank you. Glad, glad, glad that we're, we share that. Maybe some of you uh, know about the Kobayashi Maru. Do you know about Kobayashi Maru? This is a story, it's one of the episodes where Captain, it actually comes out later in one of the movies, where Captain Kirk, it's it's a known story that when he was a cadet, he would have to face the the Kobayashi Maru test. What that test was, was given to cadets who wanted to be uh, captains in Starfleet. Boy, I know, it's a total nerdy thing here. but, But what would happen is there's no way they could win. The computer program was set up in such a way there's no way they could win. But the instructors and the teachers wanted to see how these young cadets would react to failure, to terror, to fear to losing everything. That's really what the test was about. But young, not yet Captain Kirk, sneaks in somehow and alters the computer program, and he wins. He defeats the Kobayashi Maru. And some people would say that he cheated, but others in Star Trek say, no, he didn't cheat. He just took advantage of his own particular skills and gifts. I love that story, and I love people who know how to find a way, no matter what it is they're facing. They find a way to turn things around so the challenge becomes an opportunity. Too often we don't have the ability to see our way through these tough moments because we worry and that worry causes us to lose our faith and our courage. Psychologists though, have done some studies and they've seen that most of the things that you and I worry about never ever come to fruition. Never. My, my brother, for example, my brother David, six foot 7 he's been here a few times to, to Country Club Christian Church when he and his girlfriend got here on, on vacations and such. Six seven, bald, looks a lot like me except he's a really great athlete. He was an all-state basketball player in high school, he was an all-conference player in junior college, he was all-conference when he played for Alaska Anchorage. In fact, my brother David scored 20 points against KU over Milt Newton. Some of you remember Milt Newton, I might remember. Um, my brother remembers trust me and, and he can tell you the story over and over and o- over again but there's one thing I'm better at than my brother and it's swimming in the ocean do you know why because he's afraid of sharks yeah. and I've told him I'm turning se- I'm turning 60 years old in three years and in three years from now if you haven't yet gotten into the ocean and gone for a race with me I'm going to be declared the winner it'll be the one time I beat my brother at something it's an irrational fear it's a thousand times more dangerous to drive to the beach than it is to get in the water shark attacks are that rare and yet sometimes we just let those irrational fears dominate us john ortberg says that worry kills courage because worry asks over and over again what if what if this what if that and it names all the possible what ifs but think about it what if you have a car wreck well you'll get a new one what if you lose your wallet You'll get a new one. What if your senior minister preaches a bad sermon? You'll send them on sabbatical to Hawaii, (laughs) just, just so we're clear. The courage to be who we are, to face our giants, whatever they may be, will finally give us the courage that we need to be vulnerable enough to face maybe the greatest giant we face. Because oftentimes that's the person in the mirror. I believe that's what happened for David. David, as you are aware, becomes the king of Israel. He becomes one, the Bible says, who's who, who has God's own heart within him. A man after God's own heart. It's as though he's got a, a view of the world that comes from a heavenly gaze. And yet David, not only is he the most powerful man of all of Israel, he may have been one of the weakest. You remember the story. He's in his chambers one day, he looks out over Jerusalem he sees a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba he enters into an adulterous affair with her sends her husband off to the front lines of battle so that he can be taken care of and he is, he's killed and then David takes Bathsheba as his own Nathan who was a prophet in Israel at that time, a prophet in the king's court, courageously stands in front of the king to challenge him but he's also brilliant and he uses his own particular gifts and skills in that moment. He goes to the king and he says, my king, there's a man in our, in our kingdom who has 10,000 sheep. And yet he killed this one poor shepherd who had but a lone sheep in his possession so that he could take that sheep. David flies into a rage at, the, at hearing this story and he says, who is it? Who is this man? I will, I will take him myself. And the, the prophet, a brave preacher, looks at David and says, You are the man. Now in that moment, David has become Goliath. Because David is the most powerful man. David can kill the prophet, bury his body, send him away. He's got everything in, in his charge, and his control. But I believe that David flashes back to the Valley of Elah to that point when he encountered the giant. The one named Goliath. And David, in perhaps the most courageous moment of his life, confesses his sin. The responsive reading that you all read this morning in the bulletin is from Psalm 51. Tradition says that David wrote it. I like to believe the tradition is right. The tradition says he wrote it after his failure after his confession of sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a new heart. In that moment, David looked in the mirror and he saw what he'd become. And then he found the courage that he needed to rely on God and God's grace. Sisters and brothers, let's together look at the giants that we face, even if the one you look at is looking back at you in the mirror. Amen.